This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Curse of the King, and the author is Omari Pai, and Omari joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Omari. Great to have you with us. Thank you, sir. Glad to be here. Well, this book, Curse of the King, uh, this is an incredible uh, story. It's going to, uh, we're dealing with uh, highly uh, trained assassins. We're dealing with uh, a curse that turns people into, uh, I mean, the worst possible monster, I guess. And, of course... uh, uh, Edrin, who is the present, lives in the present day, he, he got to deal with this curse. Uh, he doesn't know quite what to do with it, or do with himself, I guess, and how to control it. But you you start out your book with uh, with learning how the curse all came about. And before we get to 1655, tell us about yourself and a little bit about yourself and how this book came about, Omari. Okay. Well. Um... I'm from San Antonio, Texas. I've always been into, you know, fiction and nonfiction, just growing up watching movies and you know, reading stories and things like that. I've always been into art. That's really what got me uh, started writing. In high school, uh, I've always wanted to be this artist. I always wanted to draw. I had met a friend who was writing in a comic book, so we decided to write comic books together. So he would come up with stories, and I would come up with the characters, and we just worked together. And it's just something I've always wanted to do. But over time, you know, things slowed down, and we never you know, achieved but, you know, writing a comic book or anything. But the story still stays; the you know, images still stays, and it's just something I've always been passionate about. Um, I'm in the, the Air Force. I've been in the Air Force 15 years, and I finally took a break of, from doing everything else that I've wanted to do, and finally set some time aside. Like, hey, let's do what I'm actually passionate about. I've always been a good storyteller. I've always had these ideas, and I just finally. You know, hearing people say all the time, like, when, they, when can we get these stories, or how are you always, where do you come up with these stories? So I finally put something down on paper. Well, this uh, King Dehan, is that his name? Down in right. South Africa, you know, he's got this insatiable lust for power, and you're taking us to 1655. Just kind of set that up for us, and who he is, and, and what he's all about. Well, King Dehan was a uh, uh, a cruel person. He's real greedy, real, real, you know, power hungry. And uh, he had everything he could ever want, but of course, every, every person who has everything they ever want wants more of it. Being that he was this type of character, he didn't care who he, you know, hurt in the way of getting what he wanted. But he began uh, sacrificing the things that were close to him. That's got him this power, and which, which, uh, which doctor cursed him for that? Because she started seeing 
saying, you know, the lives of people that they were, uh, he was supposed to be protecting, fading away. People were dying and getting sick, and he didn't care as long as he, you know, worshipped this, this God that he, that he loved so much to get, you know, more power. So that's how it came, and for this to continue on, for him to suffer even more, his sons and his sons after that would carry on this curse forever so that everyone would know you know the price to pay for being greedy and uh, power hungry so these are Vandera kings as that's the uh, line of kings Vandera say so what's the line of the Vandera right you you've got uh, this Vandera is this creature that uh, he turns into from this curse Oh, the Vandera, it's, uh, it's uh, an African god that they worship out there. It's pretty much a d- demonic lion. It's just their symbol of, uh, of what they considered their god at the time. That's what gave them power. The lions were the king of the land, and they worshipped that animal for what it was. It was nobody, you know, messed with the king. Of, nobody, everybody, everything praised the big king, and that had all the power. And that's what this culture wanted to be. They represent it. So this is a supernatural creature, uh, and you you uh, have a different take on, well, what most movies today, when you think about vampires and werewolves, you've got a whole different view of that, and uh, because of this dynamic, uh, demonic side of of that, right? Right, right. And I'm real passionate about the fictional stuff about werewolves and vampires. So I always wanted to put my my spin on it, my little twist, something to give different rather than the same, you know, storyline, same, you know, bit by a dog, bit by a wolf, and become this for, you know, whatever sort of reason. I just wanted something to make this uh, just a little different. That's why I, I never say werewolf in the book at all. I always say Bandara or demonic uh, uh, wolf or demonic lion-looking creature. I want it to be a little bigger and more powerful and more scary than a, you know, a, a big wolf. Honestly. So uh, this this curse that starts back in 1655 uh, somehow gets all the way up to the present day. Right. And now we're in Ad- just, uh, we're in Atlantic City. And tell us about Edrin. Is it Edrin Mather? Edrin Mather. Right? Mather. So how is he tied back to 1655? Well, Edrin Mather is a great-great-grandson of that king. Once uh, the uh, once the children from this, uh, from whoever, from the king comes of age, it's a, uh, what is it, it's instinct for them to come together and fight to see who's stronger to, to, to hold, to carry on this king, this curse of the king. And as his as he came in age, he came and challenged his father for the title, and he's the one that won, obviously that battle. And he's waiting for his challengers now. And it's just the story tells how he's dealing with, you know, being the the king and knowing that at any time in his life somebody's going to come and try to kill him for his power. But he's a little different. He's just not some wicked, evil, demonic monster. He's also seems to have, you know, have a side to him that he wants to see justice uh, served. He probably wants to get paid for that, too, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. 
it's a modern take on it. It's, you know, it's like, so it's not guys living in sewers, running around on top of roofs or anything like that. You know, it's a guy, he's, he's living with it day to day. He figures out a way to to live and and work with this instead of embracing it like his father did where, you know, all he wanted was more power and, you know, to destroy things. He feels that this isn't all his life. There's more to it than, than just to use it for, to get what he wants. So he's going to battle the mob. Well, he, he did at, at times. You know, it was just throughout his life because being that they have this curse that makes them, and gives them a you know extended life. He live, they live a little longer. So he's been through a few things. Yes, yeah, so he's been through a lot. Uh, especially uh, one of the one of the scenes uh, that one of your favorite scenes is the attack on the police department. Tell us about that. Oh yes, yes. Well, um. He's investigating uh, uh, the. Uh, he's he's been attacked by his sons, and he's going out to find them. He's doing the total opposite. Instead of waiting for them to come to him, he's going looking for for them. Well, he's searching around all day, and he can't find. He goes to. Uh, he finally ends up at a, a monastery, and his monastery. He he finds who he's looking for, but he doesn't actually see him. But he just knows where you know, to find him. So he leaves and he goes to his best friend, Heisen, who's, you know, chief police of the police department, talks to him and then leaves. Well, the monster had the assassins follow him. And they go in and they attack this precinct, thinking that Heisen, his best friend, is the Vandera, Vandara king. And so they go in and they infiltrate this, this uh, precinct from inside, which is, with just, you know, short weapons and swords and little things like that, end up into the vault into the uh, gun cage and taking the gun and taking pretty much the precinct down from inside. Uh, so I like it because, you know, they, they say nothing to each other the whole time, just hand signals. And, you know, it's something that would catch anybody off guard. You see guys coming into your office dressed, you know, in, in funny outfits. You're not thinking that they're here to kill everybody in the room. So it's just, that's, that's one of my favorites. Now, one of the... Uh part of the book that is unlike a, a lot of other books that are you know dwell on these kinds of supernatural creatures you have this this theme that no matter what you feel you want to do no matter how bad you want to change you're always you'll always be your parents child now help us understand where you're coming from on that well edrin he doesn't hate it he enjoys who he is his genetics come from his, his, his personality comes from his father. So a lot of the things that he he does, he doesn't realize it comes from his you know his father. And he, a lot of the ways he he's wishing not to be that way, he's wishing to change. If he sees there's another way to to use the gift that he has, use this curse that he has in other ways other than destroying things, other than being being what he you know hated, what he fought against. But it seems that no matter how much he tries to fight it, it seems to turn out the exact same ways that his father was. And so he's in, he's tied in between whether to, to give up and just accept it or to keep finding ways to fight back and change. So is this book the start of um, more books under the same theme or the same storyline? Right. I have two more I'm trying to write after this one. With the same characters, or well, this is yeah. Edwin is going to be throughout, and I'm going to add a few more, a few more things. Like the, at the end of this book, I give you a taste of my take on the vampires. And 
So uh, this Edrin, he understands who he is, like you just explained. Uh, you know, he he is his father's uh, child, and he has that bloodline. Uh, but he's trying to blend in with society while trying to suppress this uh, dynamic, uh, demonic beast within him. Right. So it's a it's a rather of you know really kind of torn in different directions I guess at the same time. Exactly, he it, it is. It's like you know what you what you need to do, but it's so easy to go down the path that you know that you know could you could just do easily. But you've been taught pretty much your whole life, or try a whole other avenue. Yeah, it's harder. Yeah, you don't understand it, but. It should be working. Well, with all this, uh, with these demonic creatures, at the same time, though, you've got a theme that where you're focused around family, friends, and love. That's uh, mm-hmm. kind of an interesting twist with all of this. <laughs> Gotta have a little bit more than just just ang- be angry all the time, you know. We appreciate you joining us, Maurice, uh, with your book "Curse of the King." What's the best way to get your book? Uh, online through Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, it's on the Kindle. And are much one are you uh, already publishing another book in this series? No, sir. I'm actually starting another series, of uh, uh, another story. I'm going to branch off a little bit and do something uh, a little different this time. But I'm going to keep on with the next one, though. Well, thank you so much for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. The book today is titled The Ideal Woman, and our author, Roy Espiritu, joins me from Wisconsin, I believe it is. Is that correct, sir? That's correct. Wonderful. Great to talk with you. This is a novel of about 300 pages in length. You personally have a heritage that uh, reverts back to the Philippines. You've been in the United States a number of years. Where did this storyline come from, sir? Well, 
it's actually from my own experience. You know, coming from the Philippines, I'm exposed to a culture totally different from the United States. Um, people in the Philippines have a very uh, traditional society where women and men have definite roles. And to divert from that, it's considered unacceptable. And I'm showing it in my book because it's about a book about a multi-generational saga of three women, actually. The grandmother, the mother, the grandchild. The conflict between Filipino society and American society. There's a biracial granddaughter who was raised in the States, and she was raised by her mother to learn about her culture, her mother's culture. And that's sort of the gist of this story. And I'll disclose for my listeners, you are also a physician, a doctor. You have mm -hmm. that occupation, and yet uh, being an author became something that was of interest to you. How long have you pursued being an author? Well, I've been written. I mean, I'm a printed author in the Philippines. So this is nothing new for me as a writer back home. And I decided that I... Why it's another aspect of me. I'm not just a, a physician. I'm also a writer. I'm an avid collector of films and a movie buff. Hmm. And some of my favorite films are In the Bedroom, Chinatown, Hell in the Pacific. You know, I collect, I have tons of movies in my collection. Incredible. And, yes. And I, once a year I go to New York where my son is. He's a lawyer. And I always make it a point to see a Broadway show. Part of my passion as well, so that has something we have in common. You have uh, written this over what period of time? This is 308 pages of uh, length, so that seems like that would have taken a long time to write. It did. I would say with my busy schedule, you know, I have to squeeze it between being a doctor, a father, a husband, it took me roughly, I would say, probably more than five years. And it involved a lot of research. Not because I'm a Filipino in ethnicity, that I know a lot about the Philippines. I'm an, author, I'm an authority about that. But I still had to research. Like, for example, fruits. There are certain fruits that are only available certain season of the year. And then I wrote the book, and then I just realized that particular fruit is not available during the time frame, so I have to rewrite it. So fascinating. That's why, you know. One of the things that I found fascinating about your book was the stark differences in the cultural attitude towards uh, ladies or females in the culture. Mm -hmm. That is one mm -hmm. thing that you do underscore in your novel, don't you? Yes, I did. Yep. It shows, you know, it, the disparity between the sexes. You know, like, for example, I will tell you, extramarital affair by a husband are condoned. But if a woman commits adultery, it's not considered acceptable. She will be ostracized. She will be marginalized. And her family may even disown her. So that's how bad it is. I mean, I couldn't, it's double standard. And I don't think... Uh, it's fair, to be honest with you. Right. 
do you do you see some changes culturally from your interaction with other members of your family in the Philippines? Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but culture takes a lot of time to change. I would say it probably would take two or three generations before it changes, because every once in a while I still meet or run into Filipinos uh, coming to the states, and they're still. Uh, their attitude, their outlook are still what I I was exposed to it, and that was about 20, 30 years ago. Hmm. They're still very respectful to society, to uh, authority. Like, they will address me as opo, po, which is a polite way of addressing somebody. Like, I am a physician, and that's how they, they treat me. Still different. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Spiritu, as you uh, began to write this, I'm sure you had an audience in mind. What was the target audience that you were trying to reach? Well, I think it's for anyone who is interested in learning a culture totally different from American, or also it's targeting women in general, because it shows the conflict, the difference between two different cultures. Like Filipino culture is more of we, it's we, it's us, whereas American culture is more of I, myself. Mm-hmm. True, absolutely. The The fact of, uh, of life in the United States is a very, I would I apologize for saying it, but a self-centered culture, unfortunately, doesn't look out to uh, or look toward other people as a uh, as a support for them in general the uh-huh. I- the ideal woman give us a brief overview of the storyline the plot line of the ideal woman well as i told you earlier it's a multi-generational saga between a mother and her daughter you know caught between a filipino and american culture in this story uh, pearl who is the daughter uh, after being exposed to Filipino culture by her mother, she decided to visit her mother's birthplace, the Philippines, and she immediately uh, felt at home. And uh, she felt at ease, you know, she felt that it's something that she's familiar with, although she wasn't born in the Philippines. And then she caught the eye of one of a matriarch, and to be courted as potential wife to the grandson and that's where the story evolved and then something tragic happened and suddenly she was discarded she's no longer fit to be the future wife or the bride for the grandson would you describe your story as character driven or is it uh, more of a uh, I don't know adventure novel I would say it's more of story driven and uh, it's very visual, you know, because I narrated the story using colorful and fascinating festivities. I incorporated it into the story. Like the character is moving back and forth between the Philippines and the United States. So I was able to give, you know, show culture such as Barrio Fiesta, uh, the Santa Cruzan, the London season, which could be controversial because there is the reenactment of the crucifixion of Christ mm-hmm. on Good Friday, 
and it actually happens in the Philippines. You know, any society, there's always something good, something bad, something unmentionable. No society is spared of that. You also mentioned you have a passion for film. Did you use that analogy or that style to create some of your scenes? Yes. As I, uh, it's, as I am mentioning, the ideal woman is very visual. So it's very, you know, I'm, I incorporated uh, uh, the cuisine of the Philippines, the, some of the music, some of the local dances, you know. It's mentioned in the book. In fact, there's a chapter totally de dedicated to a dance, you know, a Muslim princess. Um, it's, it's a chapter dedicated just for that, and it's titled Sing Kill, which is a royal dance limited only to, the, to a Muslim princess. Mm. In a couple of sentences or paragraphs, if you were to talk to one of my listeners, meet them on the street, mm -hmm. and they find out that you are an author, how would you introduce to them the concept of the ideal woman and get them interested in buying it? Well, it's a different way of looking at uh, culture. You know, it's a story uh, that is a, a beautiful love story. And it's also, as I mentioned, a visual novel and very educational. Any underlying theme that popped out once you completed the novel? Uh, it's about primarily the, the indiscrepancy about women, the treatment that they receive, even up to this date. I think that's the main uh, topic of the story. Is there a sequel that you have already begun to write to the no, sequel? No, I don't believe in sequel. Mm -hmm. I believe that, I mean, I have written this story. I spent more than five years about this. And I believe that I should move on. I already have something in my mind that is totally different. And it's a bird's eye view of a culture from a native. So I am an authority and that's what the ideal woman is about. It would probably take hundreds of pages, if not thousands, to narrate about the Philippines. This is, as I said, the ideal woman is a bird's eye view. So people who will buy this, the audience, book lovers who will read this book, will be transported to a culture that's totally different. Different, fascinating, interesting, different culture. Were there some challenges in going back and having to do all the research that you also engaged in in order to get the, the facts straight? Outside of the time, you know, the grueling schedule that I already have, uh, have to, yes, I did have to talk to a lot of natives. The Philippines is made up of 7,000 plus islands. So you could just imagine because of that, there are cultural mores and traditions that are unique to a particular island group. Even within a, a major island, there are different cultures, subculture. Like Tagalog, where I, my ethnicity is, it's Tagalog where the national language is based upon. It has a different culture from Visayan. You know, it has a different culture from 
Mindanao, the southern part of the island, where there's uh, the Muslim population, the minority. And doctor, the culture of the Philippines has a very high standard for women that seems to be higher than that for men. What is it that uh, makes it unique, and why is it important that a woman bear children? Well, it's one way of propagating the name. It's very important. That's why in Philippine society, women marry to bear children. To do otherwise, you know, you, a woman will be treated with raised eyebrows. So there's not a, not a career path, then, in the general sense of the word. Yeah, in general, it's considered part of being married, you know. And if a lady is, is uh, career-oriented, does she refrain from marriage, then, in, your, in that culture? They, some don't get married for that reason, but a lot, you know, you're not considered normal, if you may say so, if you remain a spinster. It's considered that you should get married. You know, that's part of life. That's how it goes. You're born, you're raised, and then you get married. You settle down. You bear children for the husband. So the, the name bears on. It moves on. It's very important. You know, like for me, for example, Dr. Spiritu, you know, it's expected that I have children, especially male, are valued because it will carry on my name. When I die, Spiritu lives on. So that's very important in Filipino society. The Philippines is a fascinating place. Uh, those who are interested in history, interested in travel, interested in a different view, uh, this is a great book for you to get a hold of. The title again is The Ideal Woman, our author, Roy Espiritu. Sir, where can we get copies of your book? Well, it's available online. You know, it's published by iUniverse. I believe it's available Amazon, Barnes & Novels. It's available in three forms, ebook, softcover, hardcover. We hope to hear from you in the future, Dr. Espiritu. Thank you for joining me today and sharing the background story into not only your life and passion, but also the story of the ideal woman. Thank you for joining me today, sir. Thank you very much. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio 
with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Dragon's Mage. And the author is Cecilia Leitz. And Cecilia joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Welcome, Cecilia. Thank you for having me. Well, great to have you with us. You are 18 years of age, and this is your second book in this series of seven, which could turn into nine. My goodness, you are ambitious for your age. Thank you very much. <laughs> so how did this mystery thriller with dragons, literally about dragons in our modern day time. How did this come about? Uh, tell us a little bit about that and then we'll get into the plot and the characters and have some fun. Well, everything started actually in my grade 10 English class where my teacher actually asked me, well asked the entire class to either read or write for 15 minutes beginning of each class. And I decided to write. And one idea came after the in another. And instead of just writing about topics that she would suggest for us once in a while, I came up with my own idea. And then everything's just started playing out. And I started writing it more often. And I ended up taking it home with me, which I absolutely devoted most of my time to. Probably shouldn't have, but still did. And it just turned out by the end of my grade tenure, I had a manuscript ready to be on to the computer. So then it went on to the computer. And then once it was on the computer, I decided, wow, maybe I should find a publishing company. Now, I'm originally from Stony Plain, Canada, and I was looking for a publishing company in the nearest city, which is Edmonton. And instead of finding that on Google, I came across iUniverse, and one thing led to another, and they published me for my first book, and then uh, once this first book was made, I wanted to write another, and so another was made. Give us the title of your first book. A Dragon's Whisperer. So that was back in 2012, and now mm -hmm. we have the new one, which is A Dragon's Mage. As I said before, this is in a series. It could go from from seven at least what you thought it could even grow to nine so this is this is an ongoing an ongoing mystery thriller with dragons that is right and in this case we got good dragons right yes that is so let's let's talk about your character your main character samson drake slayer so tell us about samson so Samson, or Sam, as he's referred to by his friends, he is a very shy and he keeps to himself a lot. He is an interesting character. He actually tells his perspective within the second book on Mage's side, whereas the first book was told by Connie, his girlfriend currently in the second book, and she tells how she became a dragon's whisperer. Now, Sam and is having a little bit of a hard time because mages and dragons, they've had a big, huge conflict back in the past, like 1,500 years ago. And because of the events back then has determined how mages and dragons and how the whole mystic realm view, views them. So Sam, being a mage and living with a dragon's whisper, 
he and the dragon do not get along. Now, Connie has a darkness dragon named Knightley, and he is very overprotective of the Whisper, as any dragon would be about the Whisper. So he has to cope and try and convince the dragon that he is no threat to him or his Whisper, though it's kind of hard after having a 1,500-year grudge throughout history. As they try and work things out, things actually start or plans and plots are starting to be made. Now, the second book is based in Chicago, and within Chicago, Sam becomes a police a cop within there with the force and everything. So he's trying to do his duty, and he's committing himself to be more of the part of the human world because he wants to help humans. Humans run the, run the world, most likely. Mo- majority of them do not even know that the Mystic Realm even exists, but he wants to try and protect them from that because things in the Mystic Realm are still changing, and we as humans don't usually like change, especially not sudden change. But however, we have another mage. She took control of the other mages. Now, there are some still living within Chicago, and mages though they look different in my tale, they actually look kind of like a cat a bit because cats can be deceiving and conniving. Whereas when the curse, the mage's curse took place 1,500 years ago, which took away the mage's appearance as a human and stripped them of their magical powers. So now mages walk around, well, in their true form, they have gray skin, black hair, black cat-like ears, and pale yellow slit eyes. So humans could tell the difference between themselves and mages now. But during the years, they've been able to cope and morph back into humans. But whenever they expose their true self or want to expose their power, they will return to their mage self or their true form, and as I call it. So, wh- so we have this one mage... And she wants to eradicate the humans. She loathes humans with a fiery passion. So that's what. She, so there's a device hidden within Chicago that can eradicate all the humans in the vicinity. So we, it's Sam's job so, to try and stop that. And so we have Connie Witzberg and her dragon, and we have Judy and a new dragon. Of uh, tell us about the roles that they play. Judy is just a regular human. She actually is just kind of supporting character between Sam and Connie. Because Connie has her dragon, and she is part of a Whitsburg family, which has been known for being whispers throughout the years. And their job is to be part of the mystic realm, but still protect the human world from it as well, which is kind of what Sam's trying to do there as well. Now, our new dragon, his name is Skadoosh. Now, he's not Judy's dragon. He is actually a friend of Sam's dragon. He's a human who actually lived in Africa and came over to America because that's where his father was. And our guardians, who I have not mentioned in our little interview on the paper, they they gave him the dragon egg, and then... uh, Windbird dragon hatched, and Elliot got an uh, earth dragon, and he named him Skadoosh, which is named after his sneeze, since every time Skadoosh sneezes, he sneezes the word Skadoosh. 
So we have the the mages who hate humans, and we have uh, others with dragons that are in this mystical fight. Then, in this mystical realm fight, mm-hmm. right here on Earth. Yep. And you have a theme here. Uh, I'll read this statement from you. You can comment on it. It says. It asks a question. You ask a question. How far do you have to run until you realize you're only running from yourself? So that is a theme in your book. Yeah, because with Sam, when he's telling his perspective, he's having these multiple conflicts within himself because he wants to be more human, but he's actually a mage. He's a pure-blood mage, which means he can't ignore the mages. Now, mages have been ruled have had a tyrant rule over them for the past 1,500 years. And when I meant just one tyrant, I mean just one tyrant. This guy has found a way to be almost immortal. But when Connie killed him, her and her friends eradicated him from the scene in the first book, mages have been able to be more free with themselves because they haven't had a tyrant running their lives. But that doesn't mean he didn't have any followers. So... Sam grew up with this tyrant. The tyrant was kind of like his, he called himself his older cousin to everyone else. But basically, he was the one who trained Sam from the very beginning. And now that he's regained his freedom, and he's finding all these conflicts between the mages and the human world still, he's debating whether he should go back to the mages or hide in the human world and stay away from them as much as he can. But being the boyfriend to Connie Whitsburg, he can't really forget about the mystic realm, but he, even though he wants no part of it, so he has to try and find a way to stop running from the world that he was born into and grew up in and learn to stand his ground, take charge, so that he could help his race instead of seeing them destroy themselves and the human world along with it. Why the good dragons? How did they? Uh, how are they good? Why are they good? Dragons aren't necessarily necessarily evil. They have. When I describe it in the first book, a dragon's whisper, they are actually protectors. Why do dragons live in castles? Why do dragons live in forests? Why do they live where they are? And then why are they always ferocious towards humans? Well, let's think of the animal kingdom. They kind of need resources. Humans are abundant, so that's a good quality food source back in the medieval era. But they also had their homes, and when humans come and try and invade their homes, what's the first thing they want to do? Well, they want to protect it, right? So that's what they do. But when the mages started taking over and controlling the dragons with with a powerful fist and wanting to control the human world or enslave the human world... They said, no, that's not enough. We want to protect these. Not just not because they're a food source, but because that's life. We don't just kill off everything we see. So, And then the dragons, they actually lay a mark on the land that they want to protect. You destroy the mark, you destroy the dragon, because that is what their lifeline is. So now when they partnered up with humans, they placed their mark on the human. You destroy the human, you destroy the dragon, too. But they are just meant to be protectors. That's why we have a dragon's whisper. A dragon cannot hatch without its whisper. If you think of the story Aragon, there's kind of a similar concept in that way, too. So the characters are going to have to face their problems. They can't run from them. No. 
No, because if they they had to face them exactly like what you said, because you can't keep running, especially when the person you're running from is yourself. We see in the second book that Sam has an inner conflict. Like every time he sees his reflection, he's seeing his the old dictator or the tyrant. He is constant. He thinks he's being haunted. By him, but really it's just his mind being haunted by the thoughts of him. He thinks he's becoming him. That's why he wants to stay away from the mystic realm as much as possible. He wants to help the humans. So he can, he's running from himself until he learns to stand on his ground and say, no, that's enough. That's not going to be me. The first book, the, it's titled Dragon's Whisperer, the one we're talking about now, A Dragon's Mage. Do you have your third book in the works? Do you know the title of it? It's going to be called a dragon's human because regular humans cannot hear the dragon's voices within the mystic realm because they just know the human language. So this is uh, the third book is going to be kind of interesting because we see through Judy's point of view and how she has to communicate with dragons without having people translate them constantly for her. Well, tell us the best way to get your book, Cecilia. You can find it online on various other websites. You can get it at Coles, Chapters, Indigo. If you actually go to the publishing company, iUniverse, you can order it from there as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us on iUniverse Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.